Valet to uh, to Jimmy Carter's wife, who uh, died at 96, and of course Carter speaks of her with great affection and respect, saying we were equal partners in all things. Bruce Shapiro, Exec Director of the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University. You you got to know Rosalind a little, Bruce. A bit. I was lucky enough over the years to speak with her um, a few times, both at the Carter Center in Georgia and up uh, in New York City. Uh, Mrs. Carter, which is how everybody associated with with the Carter Enterprise, the Carter Center, spoke of her. Um, you know, Mrs. Carter was not only a, a distinguished and influential. Um, former first lady who was, when she was in office, or uh, when, when her husband was in office, was known as the Steel Magnolia for her combination of, of grace and grit. Um, she had a distinctive and huge imprint as an advocate for uh, destigmatizing the, the conversation about mental health and indeed for delivering community-based mental health services. Um, she was the key voice in establishing um, community-based mental health care in the U.S. People forget this now. Back in uh, the late 70s, during the Carter administration, one of the signature achievements was the the emptying out of uh, psychiatric hospitals and the creation of community-based mental health centers, an infrastructure that was uh, dismantled when when, uh, Ronald Reagan came into office, which uh, I remember speaking with Mrs. Carter about, and she still uh, approached fury at that. Um, It was not, indeed, the infrastructure was not reestablished until... um, the Obama administration. It was a, a great achievement on her part, something that she advocated for tirelessly and also with remarkable respect for the families of mentally ill. She wrote about mental illness in a very open way. Um, it was a, a very knowledgeable about science. The other thing, though, that's even more forgotten about Mrs. Carter um, is that she was, she remained well into her 90s, deeply involved in Georgia politics. She was a a wise counselor to her husband, but she was also, both of them, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter, were pioneers in a generation of liberal white uh, Georgians who partnered with African-American activists to take the Democratic Party in Georgia out of the segregation era, um, a, a crucial bridge generation. And my, I remember conversations with her um, in which she talked about her fury at the defeat of uh, Georgia Senator Max Cleland, the triple amputee Vietnam veteran who had been uh, Jimmy Carter's uh, Veterans Administration secretary who was um, run out of office after a really filthy campaign back in 2001. And I remember about 10 years ago talking with her in New York about a rising Georgia Democratic star who she was pointing my attention to, a young woman named Stacey Abrams. Uh, state legislator who was at that time um, red, starting a voter registration campaign and who, of course, became the Georgia Attorney General and is 
perpetually now discussed as someone who still may have a future on the national democratic stage. Um, Mrs. Carter spoke to an era in American politics that seemed full of possibility, and she never lost, I think, the idealism which sustained her and President Carter um, through their long retirement in which they arguably accomplished much more, um, whether it's through the peacemaking work of, of the Carter Center, the eradication of guinea worm, or Mrs. Carter's tireless advocacy for mental health than was achieved during the presidency itself. So from uh, President Jimmy to President Joe, 81, yesterday, and he's been given quite a nice gift from Ohio. <laughs> well, after some really grim gifts in the sacks of coal in the polling last week, which showed his age and the general mood of the country, um, not, not so great for the election a year from now, um, the... The off-year elections brought, in actually three states, Ohio, Kentucky, Virginia, some remarkably comforting news for Democrats in general, whether or not it's Biden. Um, you know, In Ohio, which has had a Republican governor for quite a while, uh, it's a divided state, but there was a huge win for an abortion rights referendum. Um, you know, the, the anti-abortion movement had hoped to um, secure uh, anti-abortion legislation in Ohio. The voters overwhelmingly approved an abortion rights referendum that, that prevents um, the elimination of abortion in that state. And this, this um, tells you something about the electorate. The, for all the, the frustration and despair of the American electorate around its political leaders, on certain issues, the electorate can still be powerfully motivated in ways that are are at odds with the polling. It's a complicated picture. Now, um, does, this doesn't this also suggest that uh, we could see abortion, uh, abortion rights becoming a decisive issue in 2024? Oh, it already is. I mean, it, it already is clearly... Um, one of the critical planks on which not only Joe Biden but the Democratic Party is going to pin its hopes. And, you know, this this is not crazy. We've seen it before. Um, the uh, election of Bill Clinton in 1992 came in large part on the back of considerable jitters at that time about what a newly, a new conservative majority on the Supreme Court might do for Roe versus Wade still in force back then, and the the fury at the Dobbs decision, at the overturning of Roe versus Wade, continues unabated at the grassroots level. Uh, that certainly helped power another big Democratic win um, last week: the re-election of Andy Bashir, the Democratic governor in Kentucky, the state that Mitch McConnell. A uh, Republican uh, senator, of course, has dominated for so many years, yet here is Andy Bashir, an unabashed liberal, um, pro-reproductive rights, um, winning in that state. And in Virginia, where Governor Glenn Youngkin, a Republican who's been viewed as a rising star, an alternative to Donald Trump and all this sort of thing, suffered a huge defeat when Democrats um, held on to the statehouse where 
uh, where uh, Yunkin had hoped to get a Republican majority, pass anti-abortion legislation, and Democrats not only held the House, they gained control of the state Senate. So it was um, a big pushback against Republican grassroots hopes in these three elections. Now, that doesn't what that translates into in the presidential election a year from now, who knows? But what it says is that we are in a very complicated time in which there is an electorate that can be motivated in ways that may not be apparent in the horse race polling we've been seeing. Okay, now Biden is having a hard time when it comes to uh, Israel Gaza war, he seems to be coming under immense pressure from his own party and voters to do more when it comes to humanitarian aid, Bruce. Well, there's a, a huge group of Democratic senators, I think 12 at this point, who yesterday signed a, a, a call for an urgent, urgent uh, intervention with humanitarian aid. Uh, and calling for a truce to deliver a very carefully worded thing. And two two influential senators who are not thought of as the far left of the party, um, Dick Durbin of Illinois, Jeff Merkley of Oregon, um, both coming out directly calling for a ceasefire. Um, What's interesting is that you've seen Biden now consistently officials in the administration consistently leaking and Biden himself occasionally saying that a deal is close, a deal is close. We haven't seen it yet. And of course, what that expresses is probably a frustration with the Netanyahu government. We've seen increasing rhetorical space uh, between an American president and an Israeli government on the subject of Palestinian civilian casualties, humanitarian aid, and the need for a cessation in Bruce, the Bruce, death. even if Biden does bend, is there any indication that uh, Bibi would heed what he has to say? That's the challenge, right? Um, what Bibi, I think, is counting on is the idea that American aid to Israel, the money pipeline, um, whatever rhetorical pressure Biden may put on for humanitarian aid or for a ceasefire or a truce or a cessation of hostilities or a pause, uh, however you want to call it, um, you know, Bibi feels clearly that American aid to Israel is something that is just going to keep flowing no matter what. This is causing some big divides in American politics and the idea of a blank check for Israel may be coming to maybe running out of gas. We don't (laughs) really know yet, but that could be happening. Now, at the same time, what Joe Biden has been pushing with increasing force in the last several days is the idea, with, with an op-ed in the Washington Post and, and in other statements, is the idea of reviving somehow the Palestinian Authority and its ability to govern Gaza. And he is, Biden is seeing the war as an opportunity to reawaken the two-state solution, reawaken um, a palace, the calls for a Palestinian state. Now, these, is, these issues we're going to take up in considerable detail with our next guest and our next story. But, Bruce, very briefly, there was a summit 
that took place between uh, the president of the US and the president of China in San Francisco, of all places, very quickly. What was your key takeout? The fact that these two were talking at all after months of historic tension is really consequential. Um, you know, we've had, even the pandas have had to go home from the Washington, D.C. Zoo. That's how bad things have gotten. Um, I think <clears throat> both she and Biden recognize that the conflict, the strategic conflict between the U.S. and China does threaten the underpinnings of each country's sort of business model in the world. And at the same time, there are important strategic objectives each country has. Were it not for the conflagration in Gaza, this would have been the big story of the week, the summit between two contending leaders trying to reestablish dialogue even as they each push their strategic aims forward. Good on you, Bruce. The voice of Bruce Shapiro, our voice from America. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.